Now he's sick. Make him well, Frankenstein. I don't know whether I... Your father made him. And Heinrich Frankenstein was your father, too. You mean to imply, then, that uh, that is my brother? But his mother was lightning. There's a creepy old house out in the hills, a domicile of weirdness, horror, and thrills, where you never have to wait in line. It's the house of Franklin Stein, a strange couple there. With monsters and ghosts A peculiar place Where the sun doesn't shine It's the house of Franklin Stein Hello and welcome to episode 93 of Super Mace Husband and Wife Geekcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Cindy. And welcome to the third episode of the House of Franklin Stein for 2020. We're heading back to the venerable Universal Monster Library for another Son of Film but this one isn't underrated like Son of Dracula. This one has one of the best casts of any horror film ever made, Son of Frankenstein. Now, we covered The Bride of Frankenstein way back on our very first House of Frankenstein episode seven years ago. Can you believe that's been oh seven years gosh. ago? Good Lord. Uh, and we have since covered the monster's other appearances in Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, House of Frankenstein, House of Dracula, and Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein as part of our Wolfman saga coverage. But oddly enough, we haven't covered the original film, but maybe we'll get around to it eventually, as well as the follow-up to this one, Ghost of Frankenstein. You never know. Yeah, you never know. So, Son of Frankenstein was released January 13th, 1939, directed by Roland V. Lee, screenplay by Willis Cooper. In the cast, we had Basil Rathbone as Wolf von Frankenstein, Boris Karloff as the monster, Bela Lugosi as Igor, Lionel Atwell as Inspector Crowe, Josephine Hutchison as Elsa von Frankenstein. Donnie Dunnigan as Peter von Frankenstein. Emma Dunn as Amelia von Frankenstein. No, she's not Amelia von Frankenstein. She's just Amelia, the nanny. Uh, Edgar Norton as Thomas Benson. Perry Irvin as Fritz. Lawrence Grant as the Burgermaster. Is the Burgermaster a Burgermeister? I don't know. The, the Burgermeister Meister Burger? Yeah, that's what always goes <laughs> in my brain. I'm not sure. It's his Burgermaster, so. Uh, Lionel Belmore as Emil Lang. Michael Mark as Ewald Newmiller. Carolyn Francis Cook as Frau Neumiller. Gustav von yeah, good luck. Seferitz as a burger. Lorimer Johnston as a burger. And Tommy Ricketts as a burger. When, which one's Burger King, I wonder. I don't know. I don't know.
The village of Frankenstein loathes the family they were named after. The locals avert their eyes from the abandoned ancestral castle and fear the strange hermit, Igor, who is often seen lurking in its guard tower. It's no surprise that the local officials are less than enthusiastic about the impending arrival of the heir of the estate, Wolf von Frankenstein, and his family from America. The council expresses their fears, speaking aloud the horrors that the previous Baron Frankenstein and his man-made monster wrecked on the countryside. Aboard their train, bound for the village, an eager Wolf von Frankenstein tells his wife Elsa how right it feels to come to live in his ancestral home. Despite the legends and rumors, he feels his father's work was right and just, and that only the bungling of an inept assistant turned his father's creation into a disaster instead of a boon to humanity. When the Frankensteins and their young son Peter arrive at the depot, they are met by a large crowd of spectators, but find their welcome less than warm. Herr Baron Frankenstein? Yes, I am Burgermeister Stillard of the village, Herr Baron. It's a great pleasure to see you, Herr Burgermeister. These are the gentlemen of the council. We come to meet you, not to greet you. I deliver you these on the instructions of your late father. Thank you. The large box contains certain papers pertaining to the estate. The small one, the key that will open it. Thank you, I... Uh... It is unfortunate that we cannot offer you a more cheerful welcome, but we can. Herr Burgermeister, gentlemen of the council, villagers, I quite realize that it was my father's misfortune to be the unwilling, unknowing cause of tragedy. I'm so sorry that I don't remember him because I've been told that he was a good man. And I know how greatly your tragedy must have weighed upon his mind. I can't undo the wrongs that you've suffered, but I beg of you, let the dead past remain buried. My wife and I and our son, we want so much to be your friends. And the crowd quickly disperses, leaving his speech to fall on deaf ears. The family gets a warmer greeting at the castle where family butler Benson and Nanny Amelia have prepared their new home. In the library, having gone over the papers the Burgermeister provided him, Wolf toasts his to his genius father and vows to use his own scientific research to clear the family's name. Neither him nor Elsa notice Igor creepily watching through the rain-soaked windows. When equipment for those experiments is hauled through the town toward the castle, the worried villagers lash out by throwing fruit and other things at the wagons. The restless tension in the town brings the curious Inspector Krog to the castle to assure Wolf that he stands ready to defend the family against the increasingly likely angry mob. Krog tells Wolf of several murders that happened after the supposed death of his father's creation. A group of men were found with trauma to the neck and burst hearts. Of course, the monster, or perhaps his ghost, is often blamed for these murders, but Wolf questions whether his father's creation was nearly as monstrous as legends say. Krog provides a first-hand account. Do you honestly know of one criminal act that this poor creature committed? Did you ever even see him? Most vivid recollection of my life. I was but a child at the time, about the age of your own son, Herr Baron. The monster had escaped and was ravaging the countryside, killing, maiming, terrorizing. One night he burst into our house. My father took a gun and fired at him. But the savage brute sent him crashing to a corner. Then he grabbed me by the arm. One doesn't easily forget here, Baron, 
An arm torn out by the roots? No, I... My lifelong ambition was to have been a soldier. But for this, I, who command seven gendarmes in a little mountain village, might have been a general. Seeing the inspector's ratcheted artificial arm, Wolf is forced to realize perhaps there is some truth to those legends about the monster. The next day, after talking to young Peter about his latest imaginary hunting expedition, Wolf visits his father's laboratory near the castle. The lab is in disrepair, the top having been destroyed in the same explosion reportedly killing the monster years ago, and the broken floor reveals a natural, boiling sulfur pit below. Lurking above the open roof is Igor, who tries to crush Wolf by releasing a large boulder. Frankenstein forces his assailant to come down at gunpoint. Igor claims he only attempted murder because he thought Wolf was out to kill him. Igor explains the villagers don't care for him. You'll see that. They hanged me once, Langstein. They broke my neck. They said I was dead. Then they cut me down. Hanged you? Hmm. Why did they hang you? Because I stole bodies. They said. Yes. No. What are you doing here? They threw me in here long ago. They wouldn't bury me in holy place like churchyard because I stole bodies. They said. So? Igor is dead! <laughs> Determining young Frankenstein is indeed a scientist. He is eager to show him something. He pulls open a large stone door hidden in the lab wall and takes the baron to the crypt. There he first finds the graves of his grandfather and father, whose coffin is defaced with maker of monsters. But what he finds next shocks Wolfbane Frankenstein to his core, the inert but living body of his father's creation. Igor explains that his friend, the monster, who does things for him, has been kept there for a long time, but in the last few months was stricken down when a lightning strike toppled a large tree on him. He begs Wolf to heal him, inferring that the two were both sons of Frankenstein. Igor is trepidatious about Wolf moving the monster to the laboratory and insists no one else must know of his existence. Wolf vows to use his father's creation to venerate him in the name of science and mark out the words monster on his crypt, rewriting it to read Maker of Men. And no one will know that he's here until... until your creation, father, walks again. While the council members continue to debate on just what Frankenstein is up to, the Doctor and Igor are busy hauling the monster's large carcass into the lab. At Wolf's request, Benson joins them, despite Igor's protest that he doesn't want anyone else to know of his friend. Wolf examines the monster with various instruments and finds that his father managed to create a nearly indestructible superhuman being that could even survive the bullets they find in his heart. He theorizes that Heinrich Frankenstein unknowingly tapped into cosmic rays when he harnessed the lightning to bring his creation to life. Igor is called before the council, who are eager to learn just what the Baron is up to, but Igor plays coy about their experiments. When the council members threaten to hang Igor again if they find out he's lying, he receives assurance from the Burgermaster that they can't hang him again for his previous crimes, since he was indeed pronounced dead. Igor points out that six of the eight men who convicted and hung him are actually dead, with only Herr Lang and Newmiller left. <laughs> it took eight men before to say I was to be hanged. Will the same able find you guilty again? 
So? The same eight aren't here, Webber. No. Well, I'm one of the eight, and I'll be one again with pleasure. You, you Neumüller. You were one. And I, too. Yes, you, too. Lang. That's right. I remember. That's all here now, eh? Yes. The other six are all dead. <laughs> they die dead. I die alive. <laughs> what? That'll be all, Igor. Go back to Castle Frankenstein and be careful. <coughs> <coughs> You, you speak on me. I'm sorry, I cough. You see, bone gets stuck in my throat. A self-amused <coughs> Igor manages to cough and spit in the eye of Newmiller before he leaves the courtroom. His test complete, Wolf fires up the generator in the hopes of reviving the dormant monster. He stirs more than before and reaches toward a defensive Benson, but then goes unresponsive. Wolf tells a dejected Igor that there's nothing more he can do for his friend. Sometime later, Fritz, one of the castle servants, appears before Krug and tells him he wants to quit, suspicious of the Baron's experiments. Krug tells him to stay and report back to him with any news he may have. The inspector visits with Elsa and learns how much time Wolf has been spending in his father's old lab. Wolf enters and plays off his activities, but is happy when Peter enters to further distract the inspector. Krug takes an instant liking to the boy and asks him about his hunting. Peter tells of tigers and bears and the large giant who came into his room and woke him up by grabbing him by the arm. Did you have a nice long nap, darling? No, not a very long nap. A giant come in here woke me up. A giant? <laughs> what an imagination. No, Amelia, it wasn't imagination. It was a giant. Come here woke me up. And when I got up, he had a hole in my arm. Did you chase him away with your gun? Oh, no, he was a nice giant. I gave him a picture book, and then he went away. Are there lots of giants around here? Only one that I ever heard of. That must have been him, then. Perhaps. Krug and Wolf are both shaken, and the Baron makes a hasty and not very convincing retreat, first into Peter's room to snoop around and then into his lab. He searches the lab, the crypt, and back to the lab again. Stuffing a knife into his pocket, he doesn't notice the large, hulking figure climb from the sulfur pit and stalk up behind him until his large, green hand is on his shoulder. Wolf is turned around by those massive hands and stares face-to-face -face at his father's creation, fully revived. The monster examines the man and sees something he recognizes. He walks over to a large mirror and is disgusted by what he sees. He grabs Wolf and pulls him over to the mirror, too, and comparing their two visages is even more disheartened. Igor emerges from the pit and calms the monster, introducing him to his savior and telling the Baron how after his experiment, the lightning, did the trick after all and revived him. Wolf tells Igor he must remain in the lab and be kept secret. When Wolf suggests he needs to experiment on him further to repair his mind, Igor isn't interested, having gotten what he wanted. Wolf tells Benson about how the monster is revived and the control Igor exerts over him. Benson pleads with his master to stop his experiments and come clean with Krug, but Wolf refuses, determined to get control of the monster through Igor and restore his family's name through his father's rehabilitated creation. 
Unbeknown to them both, Igor is watching through one of the many secret panels in the house. It's through another panel that Igor and the monster emerge in the guard tower. There they witness Herr Neromeyer drive past on his wagon. He stops long enough to spit at Igor's face in the window. Igor points his friend toward the burger, who nods in agreement. As Newmuller's wagon traverses the country road, the monster swings out from a hanging tree and grabs the man off his seat. The wagon stops, the monster growls, and then he drags Newmiller's lifeless body to the wagon, where he places it between the horses and the front wheels. He yells at the horses, which move forward, crushing their master under his own wheels, while Igor establishes his alibi, playing his horn in the guard tower window. Meanwhile, the Frankensteins welcome Krog to dinner, although Wolf is distracted from the start. Suspicions mount when Elsa notices Benson is not serving their dinner. Fritz tells him he went to Peter's room and hasn't been seen since. Wolf tries to pass it off as nothing, but both he and Krog know better. The inspector gets word of Newmiller's accident and is forced to leave. Wolf checks the lab and Igor tells him Benson ran off when he came to see the monster up and about. Are you telling me the truth? You didn't kill him? No, no, no. Why? I scare him to death. I don't have to kill him to death. <laughs> Wolf attempts to touch the resting monster, and Igor defiantly slaps his hand away. In the village, Krogh tells the doctor to check Newmiller for a burst heart and trauma to the base of his skull. That night, as Wolf secretly places a pistol beneath his pillow, Elsa admits she is frightened by what may have happened to Benson, the change in her husband, and of their home in general. Wolf tells her he's going to send them away tomorrow to Brussels for a trip, but Elsa decides to fetch Peter and have him sleep with her that night. They lay in their separate beds as Igor plays his horn in the guard tower. The monster stalks the village streets, heading to Herr Lang's apothecary shop, which Igor has marked with an X. Monster sneaks up behind the resting burger and strikes him on the back of the neck, instantly killing him. The next morning, news that Newmiller's death was no accident spreads, and Krogh heads to the castle ahead of the angry mob that is forming. He tells Wolf that neither he nor his family can leave the castle for their own safety. As the mob gathers at the gate, Wolf loses his cool and yells at the inspector's house arrest, while Krogh ensures Elsa it is for their own safety. In town, a villager finds Hare lying dead, while Krogh pays a visit to Peter's room. He asked if the boy had seen his giant friend recently. Not only has the giant come by through the wall, according to Peter, but he also gifted him a nice pocket watch. Krogh inspects the watch and finds it is inscribed to Thomas Benson, the missing butler. Wolf continues to rant about Krogh to Elsa, who tells him he is indeed acting suspicious. She even briefly questions if her husband hadn't created a monster like his father. Trying, insinuating, accusing? I'll kick him out of the house. I'll not be heckled by a stupid, intolerable policeman. Wolf! The way you're carrying on, if I were a policeman, I'd be suspicious myself. You would? Yes, I would. Mysterious things have happened. A murder in the village. Our own dear Benson disappears for no reason. They probably think that you, like your father, have created another monster or... Why, he's got even you, my own wife, believing that I... I believe nothing. I don't care about Crow. But I'm afraid. For you, for Peter... And only you, Wolf, can restore my confidence. Oh, please, darling Elsa, please, please have faith in me. Wolf is incredulous, but quickly shifts the conversation to being so concerned with his work and the experiment that will bring him fame and prestige as he looks at his father's portrait again. A knock at the door is an officer informing Krog of Herlang's murder, and the inspector leaves one of his men in charge of the guards, keeping the mob at bay. 
Wolf takes the opportunity to go to the lab and finds the monster sleeping. He attempts to kill him with a large rock, but Igor stops him. Wolf accuses the monster of killing New Miller under Igor's commands, and the broken neck body snatcher doesn't deny it. Instead, he relishes that now all the men who sentenced him to hang are dead while he still lives. No touch him, Frankenstein! No touch him! Or something happens to you worse than dying! How long has he been here? All night! You liar! He was in the village. You made him kill Herr Neumüller. Yes! Why not? Neumüller kills me! Eight men say Igor hanged. Now... Eight men dead. All dead. You crazy fool. If Crow finds him, he'll kill him. Then he won't be any good to either of us. You get out of here. If I find you hanging around here again, I'll... He's mine. He don't belong to you. You go away. Not me. Wolf demands he leave, but Igor turns the table and tells him to go away, since the monster belongs to him. The creature swiftly goes in to throttle Wolf, but Igor stops him. Wolf quickly retreats. As the mob outside grows ever agitated, Krog returns and finds Wolf playing darts. As Krog tells him of Lang's murder, Wolf becomes increasingly flippant, mockingly saying he knows that him and his monster will be blamed for it. Krog informs him he is under arrest, not for the murder of the two burgers, but of Benson. It's a technical charge for now, since he promised the villagers he would bring the Baron in to quiet them down. Wolf refuses to divulge the truth, instead pinning the murderers on their plotter, Igor. Krug points out Igor's alibi, but Wolf still wants to kick him off the property, which Krug allows, only so he has time to search Peter's room. There he finds a hidden tunnel behind his wall and Benson's body inside. Wolf, armed with his pistol, enters the lab. Igor sneaks up behind him and tries to assault him with a hammer, but Wolf fires, seemingly killing him. Shortly thereafter, the monster rises from the pit. He finds his friend's lifeless body on the lab floor, and upon realizing he is gone, he looks at his blood-soaked hands. And screams. In the castle, Wolf tells Krog he killed Igor, but the inspector doesn't seem worried about that. He's more concerned about Benton's death, the knowledge of which shocks Wolf. The inspector accuses the Baron of harboring a monster and threatens to feed him to the angry mob if he doesn't confess. There's a monster afoot and you know it. He's in your control. By heaven, I think you're a worse fiend than your father. Where is this monster? Where is he? I'll stay by your side until you confess. And if you don't, I'll feed you to the villagers like the Romans fed Christians to the lions. Now, I wouldn't put it past you. In the meantime, will you have a drink? Or would you like to play darts? The monster lays Igor's body in the crypt and angrily shambles off to the lab where he throws most of the equipment into the sulfur pit where it explodes. It is there he finds the storybook Peter gave him. He goes off through the tunnels in the pit to find a new friend. As Krog and the Baron continues to play a very tense game of darts, the monster looks in through the secret panel in Peter's room to find the boy laying in bed. He then enters through the wall and shuts the outside door. When Amelia opens it again, the monster grabs for her and she immediately faints. The monster walks Peter through the tunnels as Elsa finds Amelia unconscious and Peter missing. They both scream and they and Wolf run for the lab while Krog runs upstairs to Peter's room, slipping through the secret panel and into the tunnel. After a pleasant walk through the tunnel, the monster helps Peter up the sulfur pit ladder and into the laboratory. When the Frankensteins and Amelia find the lab door barred, Wolf begins to climb the exterior. 
Inside, Krogh climbs up from the pit. Holding Peter, the monster grabs for Krogh and rips his artificial arm off. As Krogh fires at him with his pistol, the monster swings the arm wildly, his heavy foot holding the screaming Peter in place. The bullets only seem to anger the monster as Wolf enters the lab up high. Grabbing the hoist rope, he swings into the monster, kicking him into the sulfur pit. After a large explosion, Wolf, Peter, and Krogh watch as the monster's body sinks into the boiling sulfur. Krogh unbars the door and reunites the Frankenstein family. Days later, at the train station, the happy villagers say goodbye to the family as Wolf deeds the castle and the grounds to the town, wishing them peace and happiness at last. Peter and Krogh salute each other as the train pulls away. Herewith I deed to you the castle and the estates of Frankenstein. Do with them what you will, and may happiness and peace of mind be restored to you all. Goodbye. No. Okay, so a little background on this one. Universal founder Carl Lamley had lost his controlling interest in the studio in 1936. Uh, and after Dracula's Daughter, the new heads of the studio put an end to the first cycle of horror films that had begun with Dracula in the original Frankenstein. Uh, the increasing amount of, of uh, censorship in Hollywood also definitely was, uh, you know, was another reason that they backed away from horror movies. Uh, but just two years later, in 1938, Dracula and Frankenstein were re-released on a double bill for quick cash, and they made Universal a small fortune. So Universal got back into the monster-making business by bringing back the big guy. Uh-huh. Uh, we see right in the opening scene, director Roland B. Lee and art director Jack Otterson were leaning heavily into the German Expressionism movement that inspired the original Dracula and Frankenstein films from Universal. Uh, but Todd Browning and even James Well had never gone this abstract with the sets, with their odd angles and structures, which were seemingly made out of shadows. I've seen that described. Well, also it saved money. Yeah, but I think it was more. I think it was more of an artistic thing because I mean, honestly, they probably had existing sets they could have used from other movies. Yeah, this movie has more of a defined look than really any other Universal movie. I mean, the other Frankenstein movies have that extreme vertical look, you know, with the the lab table rising up into the mm-hmm. tower and everything. But this movie, I mean, everything's like there's no straight angle in this movie. You know, it's it's. <laughs> I mean, you notice it right away with the guard tower out front. Surprisingly, this was Lee's only real horror film, although he'd retained with Rathbone and Karloff later that same year for the historical thriller Tower of London for Universal, which also starred a very young Vincent Price. He'd made a name for himself directing historical hits like The Three Musketeers and The Count of Monte Cristo in the mid-30s. Although he lived another 30 years, his last film was Captain Kidd in 1945. That seems amazing to think that, you know... Nowadays, these directors just, you know, and actors just work and up until they literally, right. you know, they literally die. I mean, there's very few. I mean, we've had 
we've had a few actors that have like uh, like Sean Connery and Gene Hackman have retired and they're still living, but right. you know, most of them just keep just keep working. So especially and directors especially do. So we get our first glimpse of Igor here, and if you didn't know this film, you have a hard time recognizing that's Bela Lugosi. Yeah, I mean especially from before he talks. Because he's got the he's got the shaggy hair and the beard and you don't really see his teeth here, but he's got ooh he's got he, Dracula never had fangs as you know Lugosi's Dracula never had fangs, but man Igor's got him some teeth. Let yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a far cry from the suave debonair Dracula, uh, but more on Igor later. Uh, some of the council we see here play different roles in the previous films. Hare Lang is played by Lionel Belmore, who was actually the Burgermaster in the first Frankenstein film. Uh, New Miller is played by Michael Mark, who famously played the father of poor drowned little Maria in that film as well. Right. Yeah, everybody remembers him walking her through the town. Ugh. Yeah. Ooh. Uh, the Burgermaster, Lawrence Grant, had appeared in Werewolf of London as the inspector and would later play the mayor in the sequel to this film, Ghost of Frankenstein. He had appeared in Roland V. Lee's Count of Monte Cristo as well, so he got around quite a bit. Uh, we see Lionel Atwell as Inspector Krogh in this scene, but he's fairly quiet here. He'll carry a good chunk of this film later on, so more on him later as well. Okay. Now we meet the Frankensteins, and first off, we see little Donnie Dunnigan as Peter. Now... He is the Uno O'Connor of this film, which means he is the controversial actor slash character in this film that a lot of people debate about. Some folks love him. Some folks feel he is far too cutesy for this film. And some in both camps wonder why a kid raised by a German-born, England-raised father and an urbane American mother would have such a thick Southern drawl. <laughs> this is true. Yes! <laughs> Good point. <laughs> Uh, but he was four here, people, so let's yeah, cut him some slack. Little, I mean, you he, know, I mean, little, just a, I think he did really well. I think he did too. I think he's cute. I, I think he, I think he helps kind of cut, you know, it, it, it kind of humanizes Wolf. It helps Wolf out, actually. Yeah. In this movie, you know, and I, and uh, it, it definitely does. And it, and it humanizes Krog too, because Krog seems in liter, you know, he even says, I don't have a young son of my own. Right. You know, and so he, you know, he, he takes to the kid instantly. He had appeared the year before in his debut in Roland V. Lee's Mother Carries Chickens, which I don't know what that movie is, but it just, you know, sounds like a restaurant. Uh, and he would rejoin Lee, Rathbone, and Karloff and Vincent Price uh, for Tower of London. Uh, his film credits beyond that end in the early 40s, but not before he voices young Bambi for Disney in the right. film Bambi. He's still with us today, appearing at horror and nostalgia conventions when those resume, whenever that will be. You're right. But yeah, Donnie Dunnigan is uh, him and the actress, I can't think of her name, that played the little girl in Ghost of Frankenstein are still making convention appearances. And, you know, so I think that's cool. Yeah. On the other hand, his on-screen mother, Josephine Hutchison, kept working way up into the 70s, transitioning into mostly TV guest work, although she did appear in Hitchcock's North by Northwest. For genre fans, she played Grandma Robot in the famous Twilight Zone episode. Oh! I sing the body electric. I love that episode. Yeah, that is a great episode. That yeah. is awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's her. That she's a okay, grandma. She's okay. a she's a grandma. Yeah. Uh, Basil Rathbone was at the top of his box office powers during this period, having come off the massive hit The Adventures of Robin Hood, where he played the villainous Sir Guy of Gisborne opposite Errol Flynn's Robin Hood, of course, the year before. That's why he gets his name above Karloff here. So, mm. and he is the son of Frankenstein. You know, right. 
Although I guess technically so is Karloff. That's the whole point Igor makes. But anyway. Uh, Rathbone would play Captain Ramon in The Mark of Zorro, which we discussed on the network a few months ago during Zorro Month on Film and Water. But uh, he would, of course, be best remembered as the screen's quintessential Sherlock Holmes, starring in many film and radio productions as the character. And unlike recent Sherlock Holmes, I don't think Basil Rathbone ever played a superhero because now you've got Henry Cavill playing Sherlock Holmes. You've had... Uh, Robert Downey Jr. play Sherlock right. Holmes, and you've had Benedict Cumberbatch play Sherlock Holmes. Right. <laughs> so Superman, Iron Man, and Doctor Strange have all played Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> we were, and we're actually going to watch that Enola Holmes movie tonight. Tonight yeah. after we record this, so it looks good. So uh, Rathbone was known to not favor horror films, which is ironic because his role here in the creepier aspects of the Holmes film series lumped him in with Karloff and Peter Lorre in the early '60s. Uh, whom he was often cast with, mostly in pictures for Roger Corman and or American International Pictures. And I just watched the Comedy of Terrors with those three and Vincent Price last week, and Basil Rathbone was freaking hilarious in that. He just refused to die and just kept quoting Shakespeare every time he resuscitated. He resuscitated. (laughs) Yeah, that was fun. Uh, Some critics have criticized Rathbone's portrayal as being a bit shrill and over-the-top for him mostly because they say he didn't like horror films, but I kind of think he's he's working to establish Wolf as a man who is desperately trying to convince himself everything he's doing is right when he really knows deep down it's dead wrong. That's my take on it. I don't know. What did you think about it? Oh, he's Cracker Jacks. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I mean, he gets the monster mania, but I mean, he kind of... The thing is, though, is he goes into that Thinking, you know, he honestly thinks that his father, he went in there with the idea of resurrecting that monster. He wanted to find his dad's research. He went in there looking for that. And for goodness sakes, the guy's name is Wolf. Come on! Uh, He's definitely downplaying the horror his father created. I suppose he was listening to the Fox News of the day, I guess. So. (laughs) Anyway... It's interesting that he mentions that a bungling assistant stole the wrong brain because that assistant from the first film, Fritz, played by Dwight Fry there, is destined to become merged in the popular consciousness with Igor. Right. Because Igor has a broken neck, but he really doesn't have a hunchback. He's not a hunchback. He's right. just got a broken neck. But that name sticks, you know, and, and I mean, by the time you get to young Frankenstein, which we will, of course, address <laughs> as we talk about this film... Then, you know, uh, Marty Feldman's character is supposed to be named Igor, but he calls himself Igor because, you know, Frederick calls himself Frankenstein. Right. This is, you know, Frodrick, Frodrick Frankenstein. <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, at some point, somewhere along the line, it got mixed up that Igor was, you know, and even in, in the Monster Mash, the Karloffy sounding Boris right. calls the monster Igor, but... As we'll talk about later, Igor's brain ends up in the monster right. in the next film. So, yeah, it's all very confusing. Yeah, uh, <laughs> what did you think about the chilly reception they got at the train station? I was just like, why even show up if you weren't, you know? <laughs> yeah, what's the point in that? We just want you to know that we think you're a jerk and we don't want you around. Yeah. You know, <laughs> they didn't bring the tomatoes and stuff there. That's what I, I thought was funny. You know, it's like they didn't bring fruit and. You know, vegetables to throw at him. So, yeah. Yeah, it's a throng of black umbrellas in the rain. And as soon as he goes, my father was a victim, too. They disperse, you know. Way to work the crowd there, Wolf. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Ooh. So they sent the help ahead while they vacationed in Europe, apparently. So, you know, not a bad idea. Because they talk about they were in Paris, and they yeah. were here and there. And it's like, so, yeah, I'm glad they had a nice, pleasant vacation before all this started. Ooh. Uh, Emma Dunn, who played Amelia, was in Charlie Chaplin's The Great Dictator, as well as appearing in the Dr. Kildare series of films, just like some of the cast in Son of Dracula. I didn't even know there was a Dr. Kildare series of films before this year. I thought Dr. Kildare was just the show with Richard Chamberlain. Uh-huh. You know, I didn't know. I didn't, either. I didn't either, so there you go. Edgar Norton, who plays Benson, was in another horror classic, the 1931 version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde with Frederick March, or I guess you could say Dr. Jekyll. It's... I know it's probably supposed to say Jekyll, but I've heard Jekyll so much when I people say Jekyll, I'm just like, ugh. But, you know, I guess it is supposed to be Jekyll. But anyway, he was in that, the superior version of Jekyll and Hyde with uh, Frederick Mark. Before he got bit by the monster mania, I wonder what all the scientific equipment was for. What do you think Wolf was supposed to be working on? I think he's always been going towards the goal of finishing his father's research. Mm. I think that's always been what's going on there. So you think if he hadn't found... The monster. He would have made a monster. Uh-huh. Yeah, I kind of get that impression, too. Yeah. That's yeah. what he was after. Yeah. Now, with Inspector Crow, we have to discuss the elephant in the room, which we were getting, I mentioned earlier. This film, even more so than the previous two films, provided the basic inspiration for Gene Wilder's and Mel Brooks's Young Frankenstein. The basic plot of a descendant coming to claim his family heritage and being taken over by monster madness is certainly there, but the artificially armed Inspector character is where the connections become very solid. Yes. And since Kenneth Mars' Inspector Kemp in that film was such a ludicrous, over-the-top, memorable character, it tends to color your view of Lionel Atwell's Inspector Krogh, despite the fact that he gives a very strong performance. Yes. So, you know, you you know, at first, you you got to get past that. You got to get past... Right. You know, to the lumber yard. You know, you gotta get past that. <laughs> a riot is an ugly thing, but I think it's high time we had one. You know, that guy. And so, yeah, Atwell was a horror star in the early 30s, like Karloff and Lugosi, headlining films for other studios such as Dr. X, Murders in the Zoo, and Mystery of the Wax Museum, which was later remade with Vincent Price. This was his first universal horror film, but he would become a staple of them, appearing in nearly every Frankenstein film following usually as an official of some sort, but occasionally reverting to his proven mad scientist role. He also played Moriarty, opposite Rathbone, in the Sherlock Holmes series. Uh, Atwell's career and life were cut short by scandal due to a supposed orgy at his house, which reportedly included naked guests, pornographic films, and charges of rape, but not against him. Uh, Atwell perjured himself in court to protect his guest's dignity and was sentenced to five years probation, and he was essentially blacklisted for it. Uh, following this, he suffered through mostly Poverty Row films and died only seven years after this in 1946. So he died fairly young. Mm. The Classic Horror Club podcast, which I always recommend, and you heard the trailer last time, I think, uh, Richard and Jeff actually covered uh, several Lionel Atwell films and did a Lionel Atwell episode, and they talked about his life and really went into the history of the scandal, and I highly recommend you guys go check that out. I don't remember the episode number, but go listen to that show anyway. It's it's just great. They did a really fun series back in the summer where they went to the drive-in. They looked like it adds that, um, and if I mentioned this on a previous episode, I apologize, 
but they went to, uh, they looked at ads for drive-in movies like back in the 60s and 70s, and they went to that drive-in and talked about those two movies. And gotcha. They, you know, they were in the car, and it was, it was really, it was really cool, really well done. Especially, you know, pandemic, go to the drive-in. So, yeah. Yeah, it was really fun. So, what did you think of the inspector's backstory? Oh, my gosh. And, I mean, you think about it. He's like, well, how do you know the monster was evil? How do you know that? And he tells him, you know, he's why my arm is the way it is. He ripped it out by the root. And then, you know, he was just like, oh, shit. (laughs) You (laughs) could just see the look on his face. Like, yeah, you know. Yeah, it's too bad he didn't take that to heart. You know, I mean, you know, this is before he finds the monster. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, dude, you just met somebody. He ripped the dude's arm off, you know. When he was a child. When he was a child. Although, you know, it kind of paints the creature, as Karloff liked to call him. He didn't like to call him the monster. It paints him in a pretty bad light because we saw him accidentally murder little Maria in the first film. And he was just traumatized by it instantly. You know, he falls her into the pond, of course. Yeah. And she drowns. But to think he would just rip a kid's arm off almost seems out of character. Now, but then you remember he did just knock that old woman into the, 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 the basically the well underneath yeah. the, 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 the windmill in the beginning of Bride of Frankenstein. And there is a little girl that's found dead in Bride, but in the movie, you assume it's the monster that killed her. But actually, in the script, and as originally filmed, it was Dwight Fry's character in that film, Carl, who was working for Pretorius to grave rob for the the bride's parts. Yeah. He was the one that killed the girl, and it was pinned on the monster. So he got the the town stirred up even more than than they would have been with the monster anyway. But that part was cut out, and so, you know, for the past 80 years, the monsters killed another little girl, but he wasn't supposed to have, so... But anyway, it does it does just seem like woof because you identify with the monster and you kind of and kids identify with the monster and it's just I don't know it's just like woof. I'm sure Krogh's artificial arm is all at will, really being conscious of how to move the arm, and then the sound effects guys going in and doing some great work in post, but it's really effective. I mean, yeah. the, the ratchety sound. I love the little things he does, like when he he takes his monocle out, sticks it in. He, he's got his hand in kind of a permanent like a gripping pose. Yeah. I guess that's just the way his hand's made, but he can like slip things in between the yeah. the thumb and the fingers. And he, he puts his monocle in there and cleans it off. And then later he puts in a matchbox in there and yeah. strikes a match. It, it's really, it's really neat. And it, it kind of reminds me of the type of stuff that Peter Cushing does. Yeah. With props and things. So, yeah. What did you think of their weird dining room? I mean. <laughs> Again, it was very, I kept thinking this and this is awful and you're going to, you're going to hate me once I say this. But do you remember the Tom and Jerry cartoons of the 60s and 70s? Yeah, yeah. Where it's very minimalist. Yes. Yeah. That's what I kept thinking of, just with color, you know. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know. Yeah, the ones that were done by, I think there was like a Russian animator that did it or something. Something, yeah. yeah. the director, yeah. But that's what it put me in mind after, of. After they shut the the division down and Hannah and Barbera went and formed their own thing, they started back up with that guy. And they're very strange, but yeah, it's it's got this. I mean, it's 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 German expressionism, but it's got this kind of weird. It's it's very stage like. It looks like a stage play, right? It, it's kind of the same. I mean, this is done on purpose, but it's kind of that same thing they did in like the third season of Batman, where they would just have okay, 
we don't have enough money to build a doorway, so we're just going to have a door frame and have Yvonne Craig, like, stand in the door like she just, you know. Come through, come yeah. Come through, yeah, even though you could see her on the other side of the door frame. But, you know, it just, it's got this weird thing. But it, it the rickety staircases are, like, on both sides, and there's, like, this weird, strange boar head over top of it. It's just, it gives it this, like, it's not a very welcoming dining room it's like no. the sword of damocles is hanging over it or something like something's going to drop from the ceiling on it it's getting ready to, you know. yeah i know i mean it works it creates yeah. this kind of feeling of dread there yeah now the lab was supposed to be several miles away from the castle manor in the first film i mean they make this big deal about the fact that that henry is is at the the lab and they have to you know and it takes the his dad the baron forever to get there to see him you know but but here it's just like oh it's just out in the backyard yeah I mean, <laughs> well it's got connected tunnels yeah exactly yeah so <laughs> uh, you know I, I i think that was fairly consistent in both the first film two films but you know it sure looked like the whole thing blew up at the end of bride uh-huh. but here you know you've got the structure that remains it almost looks like some kind of observatory or something because it's kind of round on top well and it, it put me in mind of the Star Trek episode at the end of the cage when they go down and they reveal what it really looks like. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's what it made me think of. Oh yeah, that's good. That's good. Yeah, it does. It does look like that. Yeah, you know. But but you got to figure, you know, back then, yes, Frankenstein and Dracula were re-released, and that's what got this going. But that was rare. Movies didn't get re-released that often. Right. You couldn't, you know, watch home media. There wasn't. It wasn't showing on TV all the time. So. Your vague mem, you know, they could build sequels on vague memories. They didn't even have to do like research. Nobody would call them on it. So no. it's funny when you watch these films. You know, you you see, of course, actors reappear in different roles. Uh, Lionel Atwell, you know, will be the a mad doctor in the next one, uh, even though he's Krogh here. And you know, uh, music is recycled, but. Clothing is even recycled because I'm pretty sure that Wolf's two, uh-huh. two-tone jacket yeah. is shown again. It's shown again. again. I think it's on Ralph Bellamy in Ghost I of Frankenstein. So. Yeah, I think I think he's I think he's got that on. So <laughs> I noticed that Evelyn Anchors, one of her dresses, shows up again in another film. Okay, too. I know. I remember the jacket too. Yeah. So. Now, now we meet Bela Lugosi's Igor. Many people consider this his greatest acting performance, and. I, I can't really argue with he him. He steals the movie. He does. He totally steals the movie, yeah. It was originally quite small, his role, but uh, Roland B. Lee really loved Lugosi's take, and he increased the part in rewrites every day, and we'll get more and more about, we'll get into the rewrites later on, but in many ways, like you said, he steals the movie. You know, Karloff is the monster, Rathbone gets top billing, but Lugosi, it's Lugosi's movie. Well, I would argue that um, Lugosi is the true monster in the movie. Mm, that's right. Yeah, that's true. You know, and it's, I mean, he's the one driving the action. He's the one that gets, here's the monster. You make him come up. I want you, I want the monster to kill these, these, these people. Yeah. You know, he's the one driving everything that happens in this movie. You're right. Yeah, he is. Yeah. Universal apparently lowballed Lugosi's salary for the picture, and the director, Lee, Karloff, and Rathbone. Spoke on his behalf to get it raised, apparently. So, Universal treated Bela Lugosi horribly. I mean, for somebody who, I mean, basically, they built... Saved their butt. Built their... I mean, yeah. Built a, a whole, like, series of movies around them. 
I mean, I mean, think about if Marvel Studios treated uh, Robert Downey Jr. like right. shit. I mean, that's basically the way they treated him. Yeah. That's like, you know, Chris Evans comes along and they suddenly forget. You know, it's not Chris Evans' fault, but they just totally forget Robert Downey Jr. That's basically Karloff and Lugosi. Yeah. You know, they just they just treat him like crap. It's just, it's awful. So, And it's not Karloff's fault at all. And I'm not one of those guys that hate Karloff for it. I actually, I actually like, I'll say this, I'm more of a Karloff guy than a Lugosi guy. Right. Overall. But Lugosi, uh, you know, I, he did hamper himself by not learning English better and, and dropping the accent back a little because Peter Laurie's from Hungary too. Right. And I mean, yeah, Peter, Peter Laurie talked like this, but you know, he never, he didn't, it didn't stop him from getting different types of roles and, and things. So yeah, you know, but, uh, but you know, Igor is not only physically different from Dracula, but just his mannerisms and oh, his yeah. characterization are totally different. I do like though, that he uses his accent you know, he's he's got he went with that whole thing, okay, well he's got a broken neck, so he's got this guttural growl. He's like, right. I steal bodies. They say you know, that that type yeah. of thing, you know, just that the way he talks, everything's just blah you know, every time he talks, which is great. And I do love that line because there's that little pause, it's like, I steal bodies. They say, you know, yeah, just like, then he raises his eyebrows, it's just it's just so great because it. It, it conveys how bad Igor is at convincing anyone he's less than guilty. Yeah. I mean, he's just, I mean, that that's kind of a weird thing to say, but Lugosi's great at, he, he's his acting is great at making Igor's acting bad. You know what I'm saying? Right, 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 right. <laughs> uh, so what did you think about his little knock on his neck bone? <laughs> Ugh. <laughs> I'm not sure... I'm I don't sure think what, it would make that noise. I'm not sure what that bone is either. I don't think there's a bone in your neck that's that big. I mean, it's like the size of like your arm, you know. Yeah, like your like I don't know. It's like the size of a like a bone of a dog's leg or something. Yeah. I mean, it's like or you know, it's like or the size of a chicken bone or something, like a big a turkey leg, like a big yeah. turkey leg, like stuck in his neck. I I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's and I'm not sure it would make that particular noise. No, know, no, either. I don't think so. But it, you know, it's fine. It, yeah, yeah. So I got a question for you. Why are Wolf's father and grandfather entombed down in this crypt off the lab? I think Igor moved them. You think so? Yeah, I think he moved them. Well, why would he move the grandfather? The grandfather never had anything to do with it. I think it's one of those cases it's like that family. Hmm. I don't know. That's I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong about that. I mean, you know, they they was it, you know, what did they do? Did they try to do it to keep the villagers from defacing the graves, even though somebody apparently got in there and defaced it? Or maybe that's why they removed it, because it was defaced. Mm, could be. That might be what prompted the them being moved. That's Yeah, could be. Yeah. For some reason, in the first film, the characters of Henry and Victor got their names swapped. But here, at least, he's Heinrich Frankenstein. It's more German than right. Henry. I don't know. You know, every other movie, Victor Frankenstein, just like in the book, is the monster maker, but... Speaking of which, we're about 20 minutes in and we finally see the monster. Yeah. Other than a few token stun appearances in later years, this is Karloff's last go at the monster. We see he's healed up from the burns from the end of the first film that he had in the beginning of Bride, but he pretty much healed up by the end of that movie. But yeah. uh, The big furry sweater was a concession to color because at one point Universal was considering going all out with a full color production of this film. There are home movies slash test footage of Karloff acting goofy 
in the full costume and makeup, and he is indeed a pale green. I've seen other people describe it as, well, he's not really, he's more of a gray. No, no, dude, he's a pale green. Yeah. I mean, you can find those things on YouTube. He's it, green. He's green. <laughs> uh, lots of folks debate whether the monster was intended to be green from the start or his makeup was green during the production of the first two films. But here his makeup is apparently green, and I'm assuming since it's going to be in color, he's intended to be green. Right. So, I don't know. The reddish-brown vest was something Karloff didn't care much for, but it does pad him out, though. It, you know, it it makes him look a little bit bulkier, a little bit bigger. Uh, he did win out in not having the creature talk again, which he was against in Bride, although I think almost everyone disagrees with him on that one because everybody agrees that that it was, you know, great that he talked in Ride of Frankenstein, you know, and including his daughter, who even says, yeah, Dad was wrong about that one. <laughs> Uh, I have forgotten that Igor says uh, the monster's mother is lightning in this one. Right. Because, uh, you know, in, in the next one, in Ghost of Frankenstein, you know, when it's not Karloff, it's Lon Chaney Jr. gets struck by lightning out and gets recharged. He says, your father was Frankenstein, but your mother was the lightning. Right. You know what I mean? So, I mean, I, I forgot he said that here, but. It's my friend. He, he does things now, I know some folks have had some fun with Igor saying, he is my friend, he does things for me, line. And and the way he paws all over the monster later, you know, I, I don't think anything beyond him possessing the monster was intended. But if you want to read stuff in the movies that weren't intended to be there, I guess you can, but I, I don't buy into that. Nah. Yeah, me neither. Yeah. I, it, no. Moving on. Yeah, moving on. So I can't help but feel if this movie were made in the 80s, the scenes with them lifting the monster into the lab and examining him, <laughs> they'd be done in like a music video, like montage, you know? Right. It's, uh, you know, like a song by Survivor, like the Monster Squad, you know, rock until you drop, dance until you I was like the MacGyver thing. Oh, you know. yeah. <laughs> That's what was yeah. running through my head when you said that. Yeah, you could do that. Or the A-Team. Yeah. Somebody needs to do that. We cut that. Yeah, somebody did. <laughs> what do you think about the bullets in his heart? I know. It's like, what? And then we find out he was powered by cosmic rays. Here's what my father thought. He could extract from lightning some super violet ray of life-giving properties. From a careful analysis of his electrical hookup, I've learned that he actually attracted cosmic rays, which neither he nor anyone else in the world of science at that time even knew existed. Of course, since then, many of our most profound scientists have come to believe that these rays are actually the very source of life itself. So he's Starman. Yeah, he's... <laughs> Or the thing, he's Ben Grimm. There you go. That'll work too. <laughs> it's clobbering time. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> Folks, I try. I really try. Uh, now, the Cosmic Ray Retcon is something I can deal with. It doesn't really change anything. It explains how the monster is so damn indestructible because he's literally unearthly. It's not like that stupid... Oh, House of Dracula revealed that, oh, you, your lycanthropy is pressure on your brain. And, oh, God, that was awful. But, anyway. Uh, 
I love how Igor shoves Benson yeah. back. Yeah. He's like, no. Yeah. You go away. No, that's later. But he's like, he just shoves him out of the way. So clearly Wolf has signed his butler's death warrant by bringing him into this, this circle of fiends, though. Yes. So now the thing about Benson, he looks so much like Dr. Pretorius. Mm, he does look better like... Uh, he does! Just like a little bit younger version Ernest of him. Sessinger, yeah, he does look like a little bit like him. He's not as... He's not as over-the-top campy as... as well, heaven, no, who could? Yeah, it's like, I, I love that guy, you know? He's like, you're wise in your generation, you know? <laughs> the bride of Frankenstein. <laughs> just, woo, can't be, but I love it. The scene with Igor in the courtroom with the council, I think that's one of Lugosi's best scenes in his career, period. Because, you know, he's the hanged man, but he's clearly in control. I mean, he's got these guys on the ropes. They're all just anxious to find out what's going on. They're very transparent about the fact that, the, you know, that they want to know what's going on. They they just soon hang him again. You know, yeah. basically, if the Burgermaster wasn't stopping them, they'd just get a rope and go try to hang him again. But Igor's just loving it because he's been assured they can't do that unless they convict him of something else. And, you know, it, I'm sorry, but that's just crazy sauce because, yeah. well, you were, you know, you, we ruled that you were dead. So, you know, you're basically a new person, even though you're not. And I'm like, what? <laughs> but, you know, there's been other movies and stuff done like that that were, there was that one movie about that. I can't think of the name of it. It was in the 80s. They were, I think they were trying to make this a franchise and it was a guy that was like electrocuted, but he like got power. And I think he was even able to like. Basically, like, travel through electricity after that. I can't think of the name of that. You guys have to tell me who it was. Uh, okay. What it was. It was like one, it was like New Line Cinema or one of those that made the Freddy Krueger movies. Or They were basically trying to make a new franchise, and it didn't take. They just did one movie or something. I can't think of the name of that. But, yeah, it was one of those, you know, it was one of those late-night rentals with the Welch Boys, you know. So. Oh, oh, oh. It The poster for it, it's on a black background. He's in an orange jumpsuit. Yeah. It's from, like... Um, upper chest up, and it's you know the lightnings out. It wasn't Mitch Pileggi from X Files, was it? That was the guy. I, I'm thinking it might have been. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not. I gonna, don't know. I don't got my. I could look it up right now, but I'm not going to. But yeah, I. I remember the poster now that you said yeah. that. It wasn't bad, but it just didn't take off. No. no. Yeah. Yeah. It was bad. Yeah. <laughs> it it was bad. Okay. Well, as. For an 80s horror movie, it wasn't bad. I mean, those were all kind of bad. You know, most of them are, but, you know. Regardless, uh, moving on. Yeah. I do love, though, that Igor, you know, he like I said, he's in control. He's even kind of, you know, it's like, hey, all the other guys are dead. You know, we're the only two that are alive. And Igor's like, uh-huh. I know. I'm like, dude, he just threatened you. You're pretty sure that he took care of the other two guys. And he spits in New Miller's eye before yeah. he leaves. <laughs> you know, he's like, "You spit on me," and he's like, "Oh, sorry, I got bone in my throat." You know, I cough, like, I cough. <laughs> yeah, it's just like uh, now when Karloff is uh, getting, re- you know, rejuvenated, or you know, doesn't seem like he is, but he actually is getting rejuvenated. He gets to make some of his distinctive growls. You know, I have to say though, this feeling doesn't have that epic feel that the similar scenes had in the first one and then in Bride, you know, with the, because they don't lift him up to the ceiling. He's more just, he's laying on a, you know, in a lab table, but this is the first time they actually connect anything to his electrodes. Yeah. Uh, because in other movies, you know, a lot of people say, oh, he's got bolts in his neck. They're electrodes. And that's what Jack Pierce designed them to be. 
uh, you know, although, you know, it's according to who you believe because Jack Pierce says that was his idea and then James Wells says it was his idea. But either way. I do think, though, that there's, it's a bad makeup job. Who? With the electrodes on this. Why? Because, I mean, it's literally like, you know when you put glue on your hand and then you peel it off? Oh, where you can see the edge? Yes. Well, it's a bad makeup job. Well, I don't think it's a bad makeup job. I think what it is, is we're watching it in high def, uh, you know, well, okay. DVD, okay. Blu-ray now, and you can see the lines. Uh, you notice it because Wolf pulls on it. That's what I'm saying. When he pulls on it, like, you know, it reminds me of like when you take glue and put it on your hand yeah. and then peel it off. It's just like it's been painted. Well, I mean, chances are it was put on with spirit gum. So, I mean, it, it is like glue. Well, so, true, you true. Know. Now, Igor is very cunning, but he's not too bright because he grabs the monster while he's being Yeah, shocked. it's like, <laughs> So... You know, but Wolf isn't too sly either because he's not very convincing to Krogh at any point in this film. Heck, even when they're getting along, he jokes about boiling him in the sulfur pit. I know! <laughs> I really don't understand why Krogh puts up with them so much in this movie, but we'll, we'll get into that more as we go along. But at least he does puff up the inspector. Yeah, yeah when Peter comes in. And he, he comments about, it's like, you know, you're not supposed to shake with your left hand, and yeah. you're not supposed to wear gloves in the house either, and and he tells him he was injured in the war. Right. And he says, are you a general? And he said, no, he's more important than a general. He's an inspector. But after that, Peter calls him general anyway. <laughs> so yeah. That's kind of funny. But I thought that it's was... a kid, yeah. yeah. I thought it was nice that he, he puffed him up, so. What did you think about... Uh, Peter's reveal about the giant coming to visit him. Well, you can just see, you know, Krogh and Wolf both going, oh, crap. And Atwell grabs for his arm, like... Oh, oh yes. Yeah, yeah. I but like that he, one. He grabbed him. He said, he grabbed me by the pick, grabbed me by the arm and woke me up. <laughs> yes. And I mean, but you could just see, I mean, you know, Krogh is like, oh. You yeah. know, he's remembered. I mean, think about how, I mean, that's so traumatic. Yeah. And honestly, I always wonder what is Krogh's motivation because here this family is coming back and this monster took his future away from him. Yeah. Why does he want to protect him? He's, I mean, Krogh's just a super dedicated. Um, I, but I'm just saying, yeah, you know. I mean, that's, I mean, I really like the character. I mean, I, I think, you know, honestly, after Lugosi, I think Atwill takes this movie. I think I think the movie belongs to Atwill and Lugosi and Atwill. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I I really do in a lot of ways. I think I think it does. I think that's fair. Yeah. Then Wolf totally cracks under pressure and shows something up when he runs out of the house. Yeah, I'm like when he finds out that the, the there's a giant blah 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 and he's like oh I've got to go take him to bed and then he runs up and then he looks around in his room and comes up whoa I gotta go you know it's just, it's like. Wow, it's like, you really have no poker face, dude. Uh, <laughs> now, Karloff has essentially been a prop up to this point, and that's one reason he left the role behind after this film. He felt like that that's where the character was going, and mm -hmm. he honestly was right to do so, because the, by the time Glenn Strange was fitted for the bolts, he was largely a prop. Right. I mean, you know, he, he would be laying around on a lab table in... In those three, in those three films until the very end, and they'd wind him up and set him loose, you know, yeah. basically. So, um, yeah. But you still, you know, you can still rely on Karloff to bring real life to the monster, you know, with just some very minor facial tics, hand gestures and whimpers. In that scene with Wolf in the mirror, 
he conveys the monster's bewilderment on who Wolf is and who and why he is. Right. I mean, he's basically like, you know, you can see like you kind of look like, you know, the guy that made me. You know, yeah, you just get that. And that's never said, but he just kind of looks at him and, and then he brings him over to the mirror. And he looks at himself and it's a very... It's just a very well done performance with no dialogue, just a few grunts and hand gestures, and I'm I'm glad that at least he gets to do that in this film. You know, there's a few moments like that. I think Harloff is a vastly undervalued actor outside of the genre. I think, you know, and I think people have kind of started to come around to it that he should have been recognized. He performed in roles that should have got him recognition, awards, nominate Oscar nominations, awards, right. and things. You know, I think. The Frankenstein Monster, The Body Snatcher. I still haven't seen Targets. I know everybody, I need to see Targets, but I just, yeah. But I mean, he, uh, I, I think he definitely should have been, you know, acknowledged, you know, by his peers more. And I mean, the dude helped found the Screen Actors Guild. He deserved a little, there's too much ass kissing of the same people and over and over in Hollywood's history, you know, they yeah. should spread the wealth around a little bit. He puts his hands near Wolf's neck and Rathbone starts to scream and Karloff just looks at him like he's like, why are you so freaking out? You know, it's yeah, just like, it's like Dude. I'm not going to like choke you. You know, it's just, this is a great place to mention Frank Skinner's score here. It's, it's similar to the music in the previous movie, but it's more contemplative and quiet in a lot of ways since this film isn't as bombastic as James Whale's Bride, you know, which is just kind of more out there in a lot of ways. Uh, the monster's music goes from rage-filled, bombast to quieter, introspective moments, and it really works. And they'll mind the hell out of this. Like we said, Universal just loves to recycle oh, yeah. this music. So, Of course, Igor here drops a hint at Benson's fate when, you know, Wolf says, oh, he'll never tell. And he says, no, he'll never tell. I knew. I was like, oh, crap, he's dead somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Igor is rubbing the monster's fur vest like a faithful puppy, and the monster only gives a barely upturned grin as if he no longer knows how to smile, despite the fact that we saw him, you know, smile quite a bit in Bride when he's with the hermit. Right. Which is another scene that, that son of Fra young Frankenstein definitely ruins for Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah. <laughs> I was gonna make espresso. <laughs> Poor Benson. He tried to warn Wolf, and that's his last real scene. He even mentions Elsa and Peter, and Wolf is kind of like, who? What are you going to do about it? Do? Continue my experiments. But what? No, I'm not worried. He's dangerous, of course. But he loves Igor and obeys him. My problem is how to make Igor obey me. But what about Madame and Master Peter, sir? Huh? Oh, yes, yes, yes. I'll have to send them away. I'll suggest tonight that they make a trip to Brussels. And they can leave on the noon train tomorrow. Get some tickets in the morning. I hope you forgive me speaking my way, sir. But I've served you for a great number of years. I think it would be better if you called in an Inspector Krogan and told him everything. No, no, no. I will not. I've begun this thing and I'll finish it. Yeah, what He's so, like I said, he is so focused on, you know, redoing his father's work. That's what he can think of. Yeah. And unfortunately, Elsa and Peter got dragged along with him. Speaking of which, let's talk about Monster Mania because... Someone has it in every movie with the Frankenstein monster. I mean, in the first movie, obviously, it's Henry. It's Pretorius and Bride because Henry doesn't want to do it. Uh -uh. He's forced to because they kidnap his wife. You know, in the next one, it's Dr. Bomer, uh, which is played by Lionel Atwell. It's more so than Wolf's brother because Wolf's brother just wants to 
like basically put the brain of his dead assistant that the monster kills into the monster. And then, of course, you got the doctor in Frankenstein meets Wolfman, then Karloff in the House of Frankenstein, and then and then the other guy in Dracula, House of Dracula. So I get why Wolf wants to clear his dad's name, but come on, dude. You know, there's other ways. You go do something impressive, and that'll... Right. You know, and then you can, and then you can say, well, you know, I come from a long line of, of Frankenstein. You know, the, my father was a scientist. You know, I feel like he was misjudged. It wasn't his intention to create a monster, but, you know, if it, he inspired me and I've done something that's helped the world. But, you know, reviving this monster, I mean, no. No, dude, just no. It's a nice bit that it takes Igor putting his whole weight behind it to move that column. When they're going to the guard tower, but the monster just does it with one hand. He's just like in a jiffy, and he just like shoves it back real quick. So, <laughs> well, and then later Wolf tries to move it. He can't move it at all. Oh, the yeah, the one in the lab. Yeah, yeah he tries to open it with a chain, and he can't. Now Igor was able to do it. Yeah, the Wolf can't do it. He's like putting his foot on it and pulling, yeah. it, and he just yeah, he can't do it. What do you think about how the monster killed Newmiller? I mean, the way he just, I mean. You know, I'm assuming he whacked him at the base of the skull because he actually kills him off camera. Right. And then he drags him back in, but then he runs him over with his own wagon. It's like, ugh. But here's the thing. He's smart enough that he's making it look like an accident. That's what gets me. The monster, the creature, is smart enough right. that he's setting this up. And I'm like... Well... Yeah, yeah, well, you know, I mean, yeah. I mean, Not like, just mindless action. He's thinking... Under the wheels, people will think that's what happened. Yeah, now Igor may have told him to do that, but but still, he's yet. still able to figure that out and yeah. understand. And later, he when he goes to the apothecary's shop, he pulls the shade down exactly to it, hide his action. It had his action, and he shuts the door when he's going to kidnap Peter. So yeah, so yeah, but at, you know, it's oof. of course Igor playing his flute is where the violin and Young Frankenstein comes from, but he's not using it to control the monster. He's just creating an alibi. Oh, yeah. I mean, it doesn't have anything to do with, like, you know, he's not chasing the notes around, like, you yeah. know, <laughs> like Peter Boyle. But uh, Wolf continues to have no poker face with Crow. He's as nervous as a cat during their brief dinner. I mean, he's just ate up, you know. So, so did, in that scene when he leaves, you know, Crow clicks his heels and bows, and then Wolf does it back. But then Krog just kind of gives him the stink eye, and then he has to do it again. Did he do it wrong or something? Or? It wasn't a sharp. It wasn't sharp enough. It, it was It was done ironically. Oh. You know how, like, if somebody will, like, somebody will salute you, and then somebody else will half-ass do it back? Mm. He half, half-assed it, and he's like, no, nah, man, uh-uh. You're going to give me the respect that's due to my station. Yeah. I, I kind of got that, too, yeah. So, yeah, I like how... <laughs> They're, they're, the tension's increase, growing between these two, obviously. So, <laughs> Wolf just flat out asked Igor if he killed Benson, and, you know, I love his response. You know, it's like, I didn't have to kill him to death. I scared him to death. Yeah. You know, it's like <laughs> but, yeah, you know, it's like, if you think this guy, like, may have killed your butler, why are you letting him hang around? Uh-huh. <laughs> Uh, but he's realizing he has no control over Igor or the monster, and this may have been a huge mistake. Really? Yeah, well, yeah. I think huh. so. You know, it's like, yeah, you know, you, again, you talk to a guy who had his arm ripped off, and then you go revive this thing. It's like, whatever, dude. You know, it's like, <laughs> uh, 
I like the subtle bit where Wolf is putting the pistol under the pillow. I don't even think you noticed that at first, did you? When we yeah, watched? I did. Oh, did you notice yeah. it? Okay, but it's just it's kind of like they're talk. She's talking, and he's just like kind of nervously like under the pillow. What did you think about those beds? So weird. But you also have to think at that time they weren't able to show, you know, a couple on screen in sharing the same bed. No, no, that's true. The the codes had come in by now and they couldn't do that, yeah. The monster is being used a lot like the Synombolist in the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, the epitome of German expressionism films, because you know, he's basically being sent out by somebody to go murder people. Heck, his shadow kills Lang's shadow. I mean, that's how we see it. It's their silhouettes. Right. You know, you see uh, Lang in his chair with his little long pipe, and he's in his rocking chair, and the monster comes up behind him. You never see him do it, which I, it's really effective. You know, it's, it's kind of more haunting that way. But I was kind of surprised to see that the vill- villagers were mobbed up before they learned about Lang's death. I thought that they had found Lang's body. Uh-uh. And no, they were just going by the fact that Neumuller's uh, autopsy came back and it was murder. And so now... But you got to think, he already, earlier, he'd already said, hey, I'm going to get him. That makes number seven of eight. Yeah. Yeah, but when they go up to the tower, you know, Igor's been playing all night, so they can't, you know... Yeah. They can't really say it was him. A wolf is really riled up, and you can't blame him to a point, except he knows the monster probably did kill this guy. So you can blame him. You know, it's right. like, it's like, dude, you don't have the right to be indignant about this. Okay, yeah. Like we said, Inspector Krogh is actually a good policeman. He, yeah. Usually, the law in these horror films are pretty useless, but Krogh is on top of things. He honestly knows more about what's going on in some ways than Wolf does. Right. I mean, he even searched his lab when he wasn't, you know, I searched your lab the yeah. other night. You know, it's like, like what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Wolf is basically not lying to his wife. He didn't create a new monster. He just revived the old one, but man, that's splitting hairs. Uh-huh. Yeah, so we'll get into the end of this, but yeah, why the hell she didn't leave him after this? I oh, I'm... Yeah. <laughs> but you stuck around with him. I wouldn't have gone there in the first place. <laughs> uh, he almost calls out to her that his work is going to clear his father, but he realizes Elsa isn't his body on his old dad isn't so bad thing. Uh, so he shifts gears. He's not convincing, though. He's never convincing when he's lying to anybody uh-uh. in this film. On the other hand, Igor is perfectly happy to tell Wolf he had the monster kill his enemies. I mean, he's just like, yeah, you know, and he's just loving it. And of course, you know, his lines of, he's mine, he don't belong to you, go away. You know, that they're delivered with such conviction and vitriol by Lugosi. I mean, that's something everybody always remembers. You just know that, okay, we're building to a head here. The right. the, the bromance between Wolf and, and Igor is over. You know, oh, yeah. They're, they're not chummy no more. I always find it interesting that Karloff's monster never seems to, like, throttle someone like you'd expect. He clubs What them. I want to know is, I mean... Where do the burst hearts come from? That is, yeah, I kind of, yeah. I don't know if that's, I mean, were they just so frightened that they... I, I don't know. I, I, I just wondered about that. And it's every, you know, all of the murders that he committed of the, I guess, the jury, for lack of a better term. Yeah. You know, what happened there? I, I don't know. That that was that was going to ask you that, yeah. But, you know, when he goes to uh, attack Wolf there in that scene, he, like, Basically grabs him, puts his head in his elbow. Uh-huh. Like, you know, of course, I mean, that just goes to show he could just like, you know, and pop his head like a pimple, I guess. But 
it's just, uh, yeah, kind of, hmm, it's kind of interesting he didn't just choke him, you know. It does seem make the monster seem kind of more inhuman that way, though. <laughs> Wolf, really? He really doesn't know how to play nice. I mean, he's being a real dick to Krog, even though he knows he could be arrested at any moment, and this man's friend is dead. You know, yeah. it's like, Lang, never heard of him. You know, just like, you know, just rubbing in his face. I mean, this guy's upset that his friend's dead, you know. And I mean, the monster that your father created ripped his arm off when he was little. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But like we said, Krog searched the lab, but he apparently didn't find anything beyond the table fit for a giant. He, you know, did he see the stairs to the sulfur pit? I don't know, but I... yeah. At first, I couldn't buy that Krog would let Wolf go to find Igor to kick him off the estate, but then I remembered he wants to search Oh, yeah, that was his way to, you know. But but he, couldn't he just force Wolf to go upstairs with him and search the room? You know, I mean, why does he have to go sneak off and do it? I don't. You know, that, there's some things about the way he handles this that are kind of strange. And it's basically just to serve the plot is what the answer is. But, yeah. And, of course, Benson's body is behind the wall. He's been dead for a while. And you think, you know, I don't know, maybe they could have thrown it in the sulfur pit. Why leave it in the hallway? He doesn't care about it being hidden. He doesn't care. Well, that's the whole point. He left the jurors there to be found. Well, that's true. I mean, he's not trying to hide it. Yeah. I mean, you know, he's yeah. like, eh, it's in the hallway. Good enough. That's true. That's true. Uh, and then we get the scene where Igor gets shot three times in the chest at close range. Uh-huh. But yet he's back in the next movie. <laughs> so maybe he got some cosmic rays. That's in the script. <laughs> That's what we're gonna say. Uh, of course, the monster finding Igor's body is one of Karloff's best moments in this film. He sways back and forth and grabs his hands, then looks down and he screams. Yeah. And that scream, Universal would use and reuse over and over again. It even appears later, I think, in um, yes, it's a House of Frankenstein when uh, J. Carol Nash's hunchback character. It's thrown out the window by the monster. Uh-huh. That's Karloff's scream you hear. Oh. It's used over and over. It's the original Wilhelm scream that's used in you know, all those movies. So, you know, like I said, why at this point is Krogh being so nice? Take Wolf off to jail, interrogate him, get the confession out of confession out of him there. Why drink and play darts? <laughs> I, uh, I, don't I don't know. I know they want everyone in the house for the finale, and I know that. You know, as far as the story goes, he's the Baron and all that. But still, they found a corpse in his house, and the guy's acting squirrely as a nut. Yeah. Arrest his ass and take him to jail. Yeah, so. I did notice it looks like Karloff trips a bit in the cave tunnel, but they leave it in. Right. Because it kind of works with the monster, because he's just, just, he's off on a tear, you know. Yeah. We see Krogh stick the darts in his arm. What you think is something only Kenneth Mars would do? I swear. I mean, what gets me is it's been a while since I'd seen this particular movie. We watch Young Frankenstein every year. Yeah. You don't think about, I mean, it shows him moving his arm, you know, with his good arm and moving it to ratchet it and putting the darts in his arm. And I'm like, I just thought that was a takeoff, you know, in Young Frankenstein. No, it really happened. Yeah, it really happened. They just... They use it to more comedic effect than that one because it's just more extreme what they do. Right, but I mean, there's still... It's not that much more extreme. No! (laughs) He doesn't do the thing where he does the... And he, you know, because he, like, goes over and stabs them all together and Gene Wilder's like, nice grouping. (laughs) 
Uh, you can't really hear it with the music and the women screaming, but Wolf blurts out the monster as he's running through, he's running toward the lab. Right. When they all, you know, when Peter goes missing. Uh, they briefly show the monster hesitate as he picks Peter up and moves him over the pit. But I think that is just for the audience to briefly think he's going to throw him in. I don't think the monster ever intended to kill him. Myself. I, I don't think so either, but I do think, like you said, it's for the audience to think. And I did, I did, I was like, oh, and I, you know, yeah. and then he picked him, you know, going back over to, to the ladder. Going back to Young Frankenstein, it's like that part where the little girl's like, we're all out of flowers. What are we going to do now? And, the, and it shows Peter Bowen, he's like, mm, and he looks at the camera like, you know what's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> but then they get on the teeter-totter, but uh, yeah. Yeah, seesaw, whatever. Uh <laughs> I think it's funny that Peter helps the monster up. Yeah. He like reaches his hand like, well, we're here or something. Yeah. He like helps him, he helps him up. You know, what a nice kid. You know, but like I said, kids love the monster. Apparently no kid actor in these films was ever scared of the guy in the monster makeup. Yeah. So they just identify with him for some reason. So Crow gets his arm ripped off. I feel so bad for him. I'm like, dude, yeah. you did it to him again. Yeah. But what's funny is, he starts firing at him. He's still holding the kid. <laughs> I hope he's got good aim. But apparently, Karloff didn't have a good grip because he dropped Dunny, Donnie Dunnigan onto the set floor flat. Oh! He just landed on his stomach. Uh, so in later shots, he was apparently wired to him. So, poor oh. kid. You know. <laughs> I think the monster planned on keeping Peter for his own, hence his foot on him. He's basically yeah. like, you can't have him. This is my friend now. Because my other friend, you killed my other friend, so now I'm claiming this guy. Yeah. This guy's my friend. You know, this boy is my friend. I, because he could have thrown him in the pit then oh, if he yeah. wanted to. So I never bought that the monster was going to kill kill Peter at all. Then Wolf swings in for a pretty spectacular stunt and kicks him in. And I wonder how many takes they had to do before the stunt man didn't go into the pit. Right. Because, I mean, he like skids toward the edge and stops. But it's like... He almost goes in too, you yeah. know, which I'm sure there's just nothing but a bunch of, you know, foam at the bottom of it or something or mattresses. But so now the ending. Wolf got off too easily. Yes. <laughs> He's like, no, you know, I helped bring a monster to life that helped bring about, you know, he is responsible for two murders. Three murders. Because of Benson. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Yep. Excuse me. He's he's responsible for three murders because he brought the monster back to life. Yeah. And yes. he's just like, oh, well. And the town's just like, hey, you gave us money. You're fine. Yeah. He, he personally didn't suffer anything other than loss of Benson. Yeah. You know, and he's like, you know, and he, I guess he wasn't too broken up about that. So, yeah. I mean, but, you know, it, it continues the tradition because Henry Frankenstein got off way too easy. Yeah. He was supposed to have died in both movies. And at the last minute, they're like, eh, let's show him. He's alive. And it's like, yeah. no, he should have been dead. You know, it is so... Uh, it's sure the monster killed people, but he was literally being ordered to do so. Yeah. But those Frankensteins, you know, like I said, they always get it off easy, you know, until the next one where that son of Frankenstein is actually trying to help somebody and do the right thing, and then he gets killed. So it's like, what? <laughs> the townspeople were indeed awfully cheery. I know they're happy to be rid of them and to get the castle in the grounds, but, I mean, to me, they should be throwing tomatoes at them again as they're running toward the train. Money, baby, money. <laughs> yeah. So what did you think of this one overall? Oh, I liked it. Oh, did you? I, oh, yeah. I like I liked the movie. And like I said, you know, Lugosi carries this film. Well, he and Atwell. 
but primarily more Lugosi. I mean, it was a really good movie. Yeah. It's not the original. It's not Bride, but there is... This is a very entertaining, well-made movie. It's also like Universal Horror's longest movie. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a little more padded than the other films, except for the end, of course. You know, it's a bit light on things for Karloff's monster to do, but Igor more than makes up for it, like you said. And if Lugosi's career had continued to give him roles like this, well, I mean, if he had had roles like this offered to him, I think Lugosi's, you know, it would have been a completely different career and probably life for him, honestly. Yeah. So it, it's just a shame. I mean, Karloff, you know, Karloff was always able to get good, you know, relatively good work. And, you know, even if he did something that was a little eh, he always had good work over here to go to next. Uh, Lugosi, unfortunately, not so much. Uh, Joe Dante, the director, of course, covered this on his Trailers from Hell video series, and he gives some fascinating tidbits. This film had a large budget, uh, but uh, Roland V. Lee went way over budget, throwing out much of the original script and rewriting it as he went along day by day. So he basically wrote the movie as he went along. <laughs> Igor wasn't even in the script and as we said previously, he kept building up Lugosi's part every day. Right. Uh, Lugosi was also originally supposed to play Inspector Crow, but thankfully they created Igor for him, and we got two of the greatest performances out of him and Lionel Atwell. So that's great. Dante confirms this indeed did launch the second cycle of Universal Horror, which really only ended after another corporate buyout, and history repeats itself. Right. Because it always does. Uh, this film is on the Frankenstein Legacy Blu-ray and DVD box sets, and I know you can rent it and stream it, so there's plenty of ways to watch it, so we highly recommend you go watch this one. It's a lot of fun. Like I said, it's got probably one of the best casts of any horror film ever. Uh, again, I really like this. Yep, me too. I think it's, I think it's you know, the first movie in Bride, I, I think this movie is is of a quality of those, I think. You know, after this, you're starting to enter B territory. Right. Uh, but uh, this is strictly another, it's an A picture. Yep. Uh, so I, I completely agree. It, watch it in a while, watch it again. So we'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll venture into the comic vault. Once upon a time, five friends who met on the Bot Talk Transformers forum set out to develop a podcast dedicated to their various interests. Transformers, science fiction, fantasy, and comic books. Part fanboys and part assholes, they came to be known as the fanholes. Their unbridled enthusiasm for podcasting did not end there, and soon enough, their proper podcast spun off into the fanholes network of podcasts. Besides our podcast proper, the fanholes soon had a continuum of genre-specific, focused shows such as Mobile Suit Mondays, Transformers Tuesdays, Toku Thursdays, and Sentai Saturdays. New weekly content can be found on Podbean, iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and fanholespodcast.blogspot.com. Fanholes Podcast, the pop culture podcast, made for the fans, by the fans. Hey there, welcome to the Mirror Factory. I'm the foreman, Max Romero, so let me tell you a little bit about what we do here. The Mirror Factory is a podcast where we talk about your favorite passages from novels, novellas, and short stories. Each episode features a different guest, who will tell us a little about the book their passage is from and why it means so much to them. Then that guest will give us a special reading of their favorite passage for our listeners. If you think you'd like to be a guest on The Mirror Factory, drop us a line at Factory Mirror on Twitter, The Mirror Factory on Facebook, or at mirrorfactorypodcast at gmail.com. The Mirror Factory is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. (laughs) 
Time to get back to work. Until next time, read a book. back and this time we got our pal and my power records of superman movie minute co-host rob kelly to grab a comic from the comic crypt for us thanks for the assist rob sorry about the bites better go see a priest about those uh detective comics number 135 was dated may 1948 according to mike's amazing world it was on sale march 24th 1948 the cover by win mortimer shows a moonlit mountain range where batman and robin are leaping from a speeding horse-drawn carriage at a large, monstrous-looking creature. The behemoth seems pretty familiar despite his bright yellow jacket and red shirt. The copy reads, Batman and Robin confront deadly danger in the true story of Frankenstein. Now, I think it's a bit odd for a cover because Batman and Robin are seen from the back and they are very tiny on the cover. The giant Frankenstein-like monster is impressive looking, but his Jubilee-inspired colors don't really work. So, Now, this is from the splash page. The story of Frankenstein, the scientist who created a monster, has thrilled the world for more than a century. But there's more to it still. Read the terrifying chronicle of this mindless creature formed in a weird laboratory. Learn the most astounding secret of all time as Batman and Robin confront the deadly dangers behind... The true story of Frankenstein. Written by Edmund Hamilton, pencils by Bob Kane, maybe. Inks by Charles Paris and edited by Jack Schiff. Gotham City, Professor Carter Nichols ponders an old document he discovered that claims the story of Frankenstein was true. Using his previously established powers of time hypnosis, oh my lord, um, Nicholas stands before a mirror and slowly chants, back to the past, back to Europe 150 years ago. And just like that, Nicholas is in Europe 150 years ago. Huh, okie dokie. He asks a villager to point him toward Castle Frankenstein, and there Nichols, announcing himself as a scientist, meets Baron Frankenstein and his cousin, Count Merton. The Baron shows Nichols his lab and asks his giant and very familiar-looking assistant Ivan to demonstrate how his new machine creates energy. Nichols recognizes it as a crude electrostatic machine. The machine has built up a powerful charge that shocks Ivan, causing him to pass out into a coma. Nichols suggests using the unknown drug adrenaline to revive him. He whips up a batch, and the giant rises, but the Baron notes he looks as if his mind is gone. Nichols theorizes it will take more of the adrenaline to bring him back around and orders Ivan to his room to rest. 
He mentions how the mindless Ivan will obey any order in this condition, which Metterin makes note of. Later in Ivan's room, the vicious Count orders the impressionable Ivan to kill his cousin the Baron so he can inherit the Frankenstein estate. Again, it's about money. Yep. Ivan stalks through the shadowed halls until he comes to the Baron's room. The servants and Nichols respond to the sounds of struggle and find Ivan choking his former master. Ivan tosses them away with unhuman strength, which Nichols believes is a result of the adrenaline. As he tends to the still-living Baron, Ivan rampages through the village, tossing over wagons and leaving a path of waylaid villagers in his wake. The villagers believe Frankenstein has created this monster. Needing help, Nichols makes a long, long, long distance call through time hypnosis to Batman and Robin. In the present, the dynamic duo feel the strange summons and soon find themselves in the Baron's bedroom. Frankenstein assures them that the real Ivan is gentle and kind, and Nichols blames it all on lack of adrenaline. Batman surmises if they give Ivan another shot of it, it will revive his mind. Word comes from a servant that Ivan has killed a man, Dirk the Forester. Batman and Robin find the man's trampled body and follow the path of broken trees to Count Mettern's home. The Cape Crusaders warn Mettern that his life may be in danger, and he takes them inside to a secret passage. He opens the door and outsteps the giant Ivan, who Mettern then orders to kill our heroes. Before Batman can administer the adrenaline, Ivan grabs Robin. Batman comes at the giant with a candle, forcing him to release the boy Wonder. But the giant reacts by smacking Batman into the stone wall, knocking him out. Tying Robin up, Metterin takes the adrenaline and gives it to Batman, figuring it will also turn the masked manhunter into his mindless slave. The deed is done over Robin's protest, and the dark night rises, his eyes glazed and his face sagging. Metterin orders Batman to terrorize the village, hoping the distraction will allow Ivan to carry out his task of killing Baron Frankenstein. The villagers react to Batman's appearance like you would expect out of a superstitious and cowardly lot, and flee from the giant bat monster. The braver ones actually shoot at the caped creeper, but bullets don't seem to harm him. Left alone in Mettern's home, Robin frees his tied hands and taking silk hangings from the ceiling, fashions a makeshift parachute in an attempt to soar to Frankenstein's castle and beat Ivan there. For a lumbering monster, Ivan is quicker than expected and arrives before the floating boy wonder. As Ivan reaches for the Baron's bed curtains, Robin calls out a warning, but Ivan strikes him down. The monster pulls back the curtains to reveal Batman and the electrostatic machine. The mindless Ivan grabs for it and is once again given a stunning jolt. As Nichols arrives and gives Ivan the remaining dose of adrenaline to restore his mind, Batman explains he was only acting like a mindless monster since he had not suffered the shock as Ivan had and adrenaline doesn't work that way. A shirt of chainmail under his costume protected him from the villagers' bullets. A deeply regretful Ivan comes to, lamenting his path of death and destruction he laid at Metterin's orders. An angry mob gathers outside with Metterin leading the charge, fueling the villagers' belief that his cousin has made a monster. Ivan responds by grabbing Metterin, with Batman unable to stop him or reason with him. He barricades himself and Metterin in the Baron's chemical storage room and warns everyone to get out of the castle. Everyone runs out, and Batman tells the crowd that there was no monster, just a man the Count had driven to crime. The castle explodes, with the Baron surmising Ivan detonated the chemicals to kill Metterin and himself. Nichols notes that the real Frankenstein creation was no monster, just an innocent man. Amongst the onlookers, an English writer asks Batman to relate the amazing story. She responds, It wouldn't be believed. I'll have to write it as fiction. Returning to the present, the dynamic duo and Nichols look over the novel Frankenstein by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. 
Robin notes, and this is the fiction story of Frankenstein, she wrote. The Cape Crusader responds, but we three are the only ones who know the true story of Frankenstein. So what did you think about this one? Holy crap. <laughs> Don't you love time hypnosis? <laughs> what the, the tar paper. <laughs> I mean, come on. We Didn't we do, uh, did we cover the story about, seems like we did one of these time hypnosis, like time travel stories before. Yeah, something it, about where they went back as knights or something. Or was it the one about the, the with the three musketeers and the yeah, man that, in the iron mask? With yeah, Superman, it was Superman, something. Batman, and Robin. Because they had met the three musketeers earlier, but then this is the like the man in the iron mask right. story. Yeah. Uh, actually, Carter Nichols appeared many times in the Golden Age and early Silver Age. He debuted in Batman number 24 in August, September 1944. Gee whiz. Crazy sauce. Uh, he sent Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson back in time on over 30 different occasions between 1944 and 1963. <laughs> Somebody was dropping some ass. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, what it was was they had they had three stories to fill in Batman and one story to fill in Detective every month. That's what happened. Uh, he usually sent Bruce and Dick, although they would always become Batman and Robin back in the past. Somehow, Nichols never learned their secret identities despite calling for Batman and Robin specifically in this tale and in a few others. That's what I'll, I, what kills me is this whole thing. I mean, you know, if you bought into the idea of the Frankenstein monster, if the idiot hadn't sent himself back in time, there never would have been a Frankenstein. Yeah, Ivan would have just died. Yeah. <laughs> so it would have been in a coma. Yeah, yeah and the, I mean, he was a, you know. Yeah, so it's one of those things that's like it was, Part of the timeline was always him going back in time. Yeah. Apparently, yeah. So, woo. Uh, <laughs> he, like we said, he even sent Clark Kent with them a few times in World's Finest. This is the first time he sent himself back in time, however. Uh, and Carter Nichols has a lengthy entry in the Michael Fleischer's Batman Encyclopedia. So I went back and checked my old copy uh, before doing this episode. E. Nelson Bridwell would pluck Nichols out of limbo in the Super Friend comic, which, of course, Rob is covering on the uh, For All Mankind podcast, which I've been on several times. And he there he would become the mentor and guardian of the off-duty Wonder Twins. So when they weren't... Well, no wonder they so screwed up. <laughs> he Jeez. sent Bruce back in time one final time in Braving the Bold number 171 in 1981, in a story written by Jerry Conway and drawn by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. Praise be his name. Uh, where Batman meets Scalp Hunter. So, uh, he sometimes later used the time ray instead of hypnosis. Is that better? The time? That's, I, I can, you know, I can jive with that a little easier. Yeah. Uh, there's no concern about altering time at all. Let's just go back and do a fact check. It's like Mr. Peabody and Sherman or something. Uh, however, I will say this. Somewhere in time, Christopher Reeve, Jane Seymour... That was hypnosis. Yeah, I mean, it's it's similar to that. Yeah, exactly. But not pulling other people in with you. Yeah, you know? yeah. I've always wondered, do their bodies remain in the present? I mean, Dark Shadows did some similar stuff like this with the uh, I Ching ones. Your real body remained in your time, but you kind of got a spiritual body in the past. So, I don't know. And then Barnabas would, like, inhabit his own body in the past because he was in the past locked up in a coffin. Yeah. So I don't I don't know. It's kind of weird. Um, the electrostatic machine 
looks like a mini guillotine with a worn saw blade in the middle, but it, it looks period appropriate though. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't look, it looks like something that like some kind of advanced scientist might make back in this period, you know? So what did you think of Ivan? I mean, inside he's colored in purple overcoat and pants and a green shirt, much more Frankenstein-y. His head is kind of brutish and flat, but he seems nice when we meet him. Right, right. Yeah. He looks to be about eight feet tall at first, but later he seems to grow when they want him to make him more monstrous. Well, and then when he sees him, you know, when he comes back, Nichols meets him, he's like, oh, it's a giant, you know. Yeah. (laughs) No big deal. And it's not like a really tall guy. Like, he's like really like a giant giant, you know. It's like... I was thinking perhaps adrenaline was misspelled or used incorrectly, but I should have known Edmund Hamilton wouldn't make such a goof. Now, I looked this up. Adrenaline, also known as epinephrine, this is from the internet, so it must be right, uh, is a hormone and medication. Adrenaline is normally produced by both the adrenal glands and a small number of neurons in the medulla oblongata, where it acts as a neurotransmitter involved in regulating visceral functions, as in respiration. Okay. Uh, So... Adrenaline without the E, as in this story, is the name brand of the drug that we usually now call epinephrine. Okay. Uh, I guess Hamilton was on top of things here. It wasn't discovered until the late 1800s, so the Baron wouldn't know of it at this point. Edmund Hamilton is a noted sci-fi author writing for the Pulps. Back in the heyday of that medium, his stories appearing alongside the likes of H.P. Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard. He was very prolific, often having multiple stories published across several magazines in one month. He is often cited as being a founder of the space opera subgenre with its more action and romance-oriented trappings, although in later years he went more towards straight science fiction when space opera kind of fell out of favor. Uh, he also wrote a lot of comics, beginning with Batman number 11, June-July 1942. During his comic career, he co-created Batwoman with Sheldon Moldoff, as well as co-creating DC sci-fi heroes Space Ranger and Chris KL99, a derivative of his own popular Captain Future pulp hero of the 40s. Hamilton wrote the Legion of Superheroes strip in Adventure Comics for a while and developed many of the characters and elements that became part of that lore, such as the Time Trapper and Timberwolf. And he wrote the imaginary tale The Clash of the Cape and Cow in World's Finest number 153, drawn by Kurt Swan, where Batman slaps Robin, setting off a barrage of memes that crack the internet in half. <laughs> so yeah, he wrote that. He wrote that panel. Uh, the art here is credited to Bob Kane, but honestly, who can say? Right. It, it actually does look like Kane, and not particularly like any of his ghosts that I'm aware of. It didn't even look like Luce or Schwartz, who was typically his ghost around this point. Uh, you know, I looked it up in several places and they do actually credit Bob Kane. He was still doing some work at this point, so it might actually be drawn by Bob Kane. So there you go. Got one question though. Why didn't Nichols just whip up another batch of adrenaline quickly? Why send him to his room right. when he whipped up the first batch so quick? I mean, they could have said, well, we need to get some more ingredients to make another batch or something. Yeah. You know, that's all they needed to say because... He makes it pretty quickly for Batman later, so, yeah, they could have avoided all this if they just treated but him again. But they needed a story. Right. Uh, the image of the monster stalking through the hall reminds me a lot of Karloff in the cave tunnels in this film, so ties right. in. And he, like I said, he looks huge shaking that carriage on page four. He must be like 12 feet tall. I know. I mean, it's like, wow. I mean, 
almost giant man at the airport in Civil War big, you know. <laughs> Not quite yeah. that big, but pretty big. So Nichols draws Batman and Robin back through time with this hypnotic force. I think old Nichols here is a much bigger threat than the monster, if he can right. do that. You know, it's like, I know back then they didn't question things like that, but that dude is like way too powerful. That's all I gotta say. And what if Batman and Robin were busy? What if they were saving someone? What if they were apprehending the Joker or, you know, defusing a bomb or, you know, yeah. I mean, Nichols, you know, it's like, it's all about you, Professor. We get it. You know, you create your own problems and you got to drag people into it. I think it's interesting how they named Dirk the Forester. Yeah. Dirk the Forester. <laughs> it's Dirk Benedict as Dirk the Forester. Uh, it's like, oh, no, not Dirk the Forester. He owed me money, you know. Yeah. <laughs> And man, he wrecked that forest. There were like just tr like big redwood type trees just broken yeah, into arches. Yeah, they look like arches, like tunnels almost. A monster under an even worse villain's control, hidden in a secret passage. So perfect tie-in, right, to this to this movie. So Ivan grabs Robin's torso in his fist, and it like wraps around it. Yes. How big is this guy? <laughs> Uh, and, you know, because Batman comes in at him with a candle, fire is indeed bad. Uh-huh. So, not a torch, but I think a torch would have been a better look, but, you know, okay. Uh, that panel of the supposedly mindless Batman is actually really well done. They give him pupils, and he just looks nuts. Yeah. I mean, he looks deranged, so it's kind of interesting to see that in a golden age. And then Batman standing on the mountains in the shadows with the storm behind him, that harkens back to the earlier golden age Batman. But I kind of wonder, why is the lightning red in this story? Like, it's got yellow behind it, but it's like... Because George Jones didn't... That's know. white lightning, not I know, really. that's what I'm saying. <laughs> I, don't know. You know. I don't know. This is before he that. He had white lightning covered, so they had to pick a different color. I guess. That was before this. But, yeah, maybe. Now, the bullets thing. I don't see why we needed that. Why did Batman think he needed to be that convincing? I guess Mattern didn't know what adrenaline was, so maybe it was just to sell the whole bit, but that whole bit about him putting the armor on underneath, the, the, I think they just wanted the shock factor of, oh, they can shoot at Batman and it, now it doesn't hurt him. You right. Know? But it's it was just kind of strange. What did you think of Robin's parachute bit? <laughs> this is audio medium. You got to enunciate. Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> you can't go, you got to enunciate. They can't see the look you're giving me. I'm just, bless it. <laughs> I thought that was kind of just a filler, you yeah. know, just to give him something to do and pad the page. I, even if he'd been able to do like some kind of glider thing, but the whole parachute, you know. Yeah. I mean, I I, mean that would only work. The whole parachute thing would only work if there was a large height difference, not and, and as far as being a drop, like yeah. a straight down drop. But for it to move across, yeah, you need you know structure to that. Yeah, I, I agree. It was kind of it was kind of kind of weird. But now Nichols can whip up more adrenaline really fast. So way uh -huh. to go, way to go, Nichols. You know why didn't you do that earlier? But I, I do really feel sorry for Ivan. I know. I mean, he didn't ask to be turned into a killing machine, and and his brain was never even Abby normal. No, you know? so he, he had a good brain. <laughs> Uh, so Ivan goes the we belong dad route and he blows him and Merton up. Just, yeah. you know, just mettering up. Just, just, yeah. Just like Frankenstein monsters have done in the past. So, 
the panel with the castle exploding was pretty impressive with its huge boom in amongst the exploding debris. But I think they should have saved just a bit more space for the Mary Shelley twist. Those panels are tiny. I know. It's almost like an afterthought. Yeah, it's like, oh yeah, we should do this gag at the end. But what did you think of that twist ending? I, I don't know. I mean, I... <laughs> I think the story of how she came up with Frankenstein, the tale of Frankenstein, that you know during the stormy nights in you know yeah. Switzerland with with uh, Percy and Lord Byron and Polidori all there. I think that's actually a better story. I don't yeah. think you need Batman there. No, plus she was like eighteen years old. Or yeah, whatever. she was a teenager. Yeah, she was a teenager. So yeah, but you know this was a lot of fun. The time travel hypnosis thing was pretty wild, but it was a great vehicle for stories. You know, it, it probably gave kids a lot of history lessons that they wouldn't get otherwise. And then they could, you know, if they learned about it at school, they could, oh, I read about that in a Batman story. Yeah. You know, exposed them to a lot of history. And, I mean, obviously this is fiction, but they did meet the historical figures and things. So, you know, it, it was fun. It's a fun romp through time. So who doesn't love those? I know it's a little goofy, but, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that'll do it for this trip to the House of Franklinstein. Thanks, as always, to all our patrons who support the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Extra special thanks to Jorge Luis Castillo and Matt Ryan for specifically supporting our JLU cast. We'll continue to thank you here until we get back to the Watchtower. Go to patreon.com slash fwpodcast to see the many ways you can help support the network and all the shows there. Special thanks to our friend Terry O'Malley, a.k.a. Warren Hill Terry, for the House of Frankenstein theme you heard at the beginning of the episode, Terry's band, Stop Calling Me Frank, has a new album out called Haberdash. Check the show notes for a link on how you can get the album. Come back in two weeks for this year's final trip to the House of Frankenstein. Don't get lost along the way, boys. There you go. Perfect. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Supermates is a Franklin and Franken production in association with Bugaloo Enterprises Worldwide. And he is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. The characters and properties mentioned in this show are copyright their respective holders. Likewise, all audio clips are copyright their holders and no infringement is implied. So please don't sue my mommy and daddy. <laughs> Emails can be sent to supermatespodcast at gmail.com. Comments can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook by searching for Supermates and FW Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter by using the hashtag FWPodcast. Please consider leaving a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening to Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast. Now you kids get around. Cause in this house, there is something special going down. <laughs> There's an outdoor kid by the name of Frankenstein. He got a great big house and a friend who's six foot nine.